This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME1. You can now download episodes of The Candid Frame directly to your smartphone or tablet. Whether your device runs on iOS, Android, or Windows 8, you can stream or download any of our 200-plus episodes. Download the app for free by visiting your favorite app store or clicking on the links in the show notes found at thecandidframe.com. Hi, this is X, and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Now, I love making photographs. Decades after I made my very first image with my dad's camera, that wonderful experience of creating something beautiful with little more than my own eye and a little pressure from my index finger is still there for me. We can talk endless hours about the latest camera or some new Photoshop technique, but when I get down to the core of it, it's really about how I can take the way I see the world and create something that makes other people look at it and go, wow. That's where the joy is. And it's been the pursuit of that joyful experience that inspires today's guest, George Lang. His photographs of President Obama, Jim Carrey, Sophia Loren, Queen Latifah, have appeared in newspapers and magazines including Glamour, People, GQ, and Sports Illustrated. He's a photographer whose mantra is, it's not just what the photographs look like, but what they feel like. In his recent book, The Unforgettable Photograph, he shares over 200 tips and secrets for how you can make great photographs of your own life. I talk to a lot of photographers who have a passion for their work. But along with passion, George brings his sincere, unadulterated joy about making pictures along for the ride as well. So enjoy our conversation with George Lang. Well, George, welcome to The Candid Frame. I'm, I'm more than pleased to, to have you on, on the show and, and, and talk about you know, a lot of things about photography and life. I, I fully expect that this is going to be a fun conversation. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. One of the things, uh, the way I wanted to start the conversation is that uh, I, in your um, TED Talk, you said something that just was just gold for me. And I really wanted you to sort of expand on the idea uh, for our audience here. And the quote was, great photographs are the ones we're not taking. I knew exactly what you meant by that. But could you, could you share with our audience exactly what you mean? I think that, that we're all amazing people. And my friends are amazing and my family's amazing and the people whose social feeds I follow are amazing. And I look at a lot of the pictures and they aren't nearly as amazing as I think they are. I think, you know, so many of the most interesting parts of our daily lives and our stories, we are living, but we are not photographing or writing about. I feel like those pictures that we aren't taking are actually the most interesting pictures. And uh, that's what I've been uh, trying to understand with my own work and with my friend's work too. 
Yeah, because when when I heard that, that that quote, what came to mind for me is when I'm taking pictures that it's not the obvious moments that I'm looking for. Uh, like you, it's those in between moments where it seems that you know the magic can happen. Those small little gestures, those small little changes in body language or or expression. Somehow, it's those moments that most people aren't paying particular attention to is where the magic happens in in the photograph. Right. And where your experience, there are two things that can happen. One is you can really try and focus on and appreciate those moments just as as a life life enriching experience. And then you can also, you know, when you have your camera or you're thinking about photography, photograph those moments and in photographing them, there you're kind of bringing them to your attention. We had this weird exercise in art school where we would make a list of everything in our garbage can. And, and it made you aware of all these crazy things that you're throwing out that you're just chucking them, chucking them, chucking them. But they were all at some point of, you know, some kind of value or not in your life. And I feel like when you're going through your day, if even your day before breakfast, there are a hundred amazing things that have happened and they're just really small things. And when you start focusing in at that level, there's a whole world that makes your life really special that's there. You have, so, you have an example in, in, in the book about um, peeling an egg. It's just sort of like this everyday moment, but you took your camera and you made a wonderful picture of it. And I, it made me think about all the moments during the course of my day where I'm, I'm not even thinking about making a photograph because I'm so focused on the next thing that I have to do. And I think that your practice of photography is so much about being in in the moment, even when you aren't there purposely to make a photograph. It seems like you're always observing everything that's happening around you uh, in a way that, that some people aren't. Where did you sort of develop that? Was that something that, that you had long before you picked up a camera or did it come out as a result of, of using a camera in the first place? Well, first of all, there there wasn't long before I picked up a camera. There's a picture at the beginning of the book where I'm standing in the driveway where I grew up in Pittsburgh. I think I'm seven years old. Um, but I feel like my parents turned on this faucet when I was born. And even if I tried, I could not turn it off. I mean, I am just wired to pick up on really small things. I'm also, you know, for better or worse, <laughs> extremely sensitive to things going on around me. And I love finding the details in life and the experiences, the pieces of experiences in life and the way our lives unfold as stories and paying attention to those things and really getting great pleasure from those things. And, you know, when I have my camera, which is a lot of the time photographing those things, and it's not only the way that things look, it's the way that things feel and, you know, photographing my own interaction with with the world and how I experience it. I really don't consider myself that visual a person, although obviously I've been taking pictures for a long time. I, I don't think consciously in a visual way that much. My photography and my life really comes out of feelings and uh, my own personal experience. You talk about when you meet with uh, someone you're going to photograph, you talk about this is an opportunity to bring joy to, to the moment and, and to the photographs. 
it seems like you got that from your from your father in reading the introduction to your to your book that your father was a very joyous affable guy and that somehow that aspect of him being able to take pleasure in in small moments is something that you really embraced and have been using to you've been using it as much as a tool as much as you would a lens or a camera or a filter or or a piece of light Right, right. I mean, both of my parents gave me a childhood that was just so full of joy to the point that when I went away to college and realized that people's parents had divorced or they had had hard childhoods and everything, I grew up in kind of this idyllic family neighborhood experience that I really didn't have the skills for even dealing with things that were that were difficult. I saw the world as a place of great possibilities. And I also was taught that anything I could dream up, I could do. Of course, <laughs> there are lots of obstacles along the way to that, but I latched onto photography really young and it gave me great pleasure. And all my parents did was, was encourage me and allow me to pursue what, what gave me pleasure. And that's that's pretty much, you know, I've been very lucky in my life that, and, and the other thing that's interesting, a lot of people along the way have said, you're so lucky to get to do for a living what gives you, you know, what you love. And my initial reaction is always, why wouldn't you do what you love? You know, we have these short, precious lives. Why wouldn't you spend your time doing what you love. But I know that there are lots of reasons. And even though I've been pursuing what I love, it's not that it hasn't been challenging and hard and, you know, oftentimes disappointing, but it's always the joy that the work has given me. That's, that's what I'm after. But from my father in particular, he was, he was just, as you described your own father so beautifully, you know, he was a good guy. And we did not spend too much time, if actually any that I remember, um, being negative. Each day was full of possibilities and people that we loved, and it was embracing the joy. And I had such a happy childhood and such a happy childhood that I feel like once I left home, I've spent the rest of my adult life trying to recreate that happiness, you know, whether it's at college or when I started doing shootings and creating the type of portraits that I do is creating an environment that people feel comfortable in and can let me in with my camera. And what I'm actually trying to do is to create that place that gave me such happiness as a child and invite my subjects into that place. Did you feel like that you were going to be a photographer when you were, when you were younger? Because you grew up in a working class community where you know, the idea of, of being an artist was probably not on the forefront of many people's minds. Because I grew up under similar sort of circumstances. So if you say you're going to be a, a photographer, they're you know, assuming that you're going to be in a studio taking pictures of crying babies or, or high school students. You know, that the idea of having the kind of career that you have is unimaginable to, to, to a lot of people. So why, why was it that you think that you were able to see it through to the point that not only did you go to college and study photography, but were able to go out and build a, a career? I think that it goes back a little to what we were talking about before, which is living in the moment. I never thought ahead to even to what I want to be when I grow up, let alone what kind of career I could have. I, it was just like each day, each day I tried to milk 
the life and the love out of out of every single day. And one thing kind of led to another. I got a lot of pleasure taking pictures. I actually loved being in the dark room so much in high school that I felt like I was just taking pictures. So I so I would have negatives to work on in, in the dark room. But as I graduated from high school, I went to uh, Rhode Island School of Design. And it was just so amazing to be able to be in that kind of environment and appreciate that you were a creative. You're right. When I was growing up, I didn't know any artists. And I certainly didn't know anyone that had ever gone to art school. And there I was at art school, and I didn't even know what that meant or could identify myself as an artist or a creative, but I was there and I was very happy and I was doing the work every week. Then I moved you know, to New York. I got a job with Annie Leibovitz, who was one of my heroes. And the things that I learned along the way were not the obvious things. Like when I was at RISD, I never learned about lighting. I never learned about medium format or like lots of things that I would need later in my career, but I did learn how to tap into my own voice. And when I was with Annie Leibovitz, I was using a lot of equipment, a lot of things I knew nothing about. I had rarely shot color, uh, let alone medium format. What I learned from Annie was rhythm. There was a certain rhythm with the way that she connected with her subjects. There was a certain rhythm with the way the commerce of photography worked and the way that people communicated. I learned Annie's rhythm and studied that for a year firsthand and then developed my own rhythm. And my career developed as much from connecting with my own voice and connecting with the rhythm of the way that world works as envisioning you know, where, where I wanted to go with it. Yeah. It seems that when you were in your childhood and when you got into college, you were putting your all into your photography and into trying to learn as much as possible. And, and you mentioned uh, in, in your email to me that you had Aaron Siskin, who is a legend in the, in the field of photography, said to you that he looked at your photographs and he says, you are much better than this. Right. You know, for so, someone hearing you initially would think that the images that you must have produced uh, during college must have been amazing, even including the factor that you're young and you only have so many years of experience underneath your belt and all that. But nevertheless, what did Siskin see in your work and see in you that propelled him to say that? Because I'm sure it was a surprise to you that you heard that, but what did it mean to you when you did? Well, first of all, he, uh, I showed him my portfolio literally on the way from RISD to New York. I had just graduated. So it was pretty upsetting to have that meeting, but he was right. There's a famous tree on Martha's Vineyard that Aaron photographed. And I had gone there and there were some dead branches underneath it. And I came back with the branches and I made this whole crazy performance class around these branches from this tree and invited Aaron. And when I would show my work at class at RISD, first of all, they would always save me for the end. We would spend hours, you know, explaining this work that really wasn't that good. Some of it was good, but a lot of it was student work and we would analyze it and dig into it and talk for long periods of time about, you know, trying to understand this student work. And then I would show my work at the end and it was almost like it was the, the entertainment and no one would say anything. And I didn't totally get that, but 
I think that Aaron was responding more to the performance that I had put on that was really much more in my voice than my photography, which was always, to be honest, a ball and chain that I would kind of pull behind me. And the thing that's interesting now is I'm 58 and I feel like I'm just really getting to the place that I have tapped into and I'm understanding and appreciating and believing in my voice. And I know that's crazy after this whole body of work and I appreciate all the pictures that I've taken, but I just even came from a meeting with a friend now and the message to myself at this age after all the pictures that I've taken is I have to be even more myself. I have to be even more what Aaron told me when I was 18 years old or 20, whatever it was. And I've worked on that my whole career, like trying to find those pictures and trying to find that work and trying to tell those stories that are uniquely mine and uniquely my voice and to really prove what makes me special. Mm. And, and, and that's been the whole the whole journey. So you, you mentioned earlier that you were uh, assisting Annie, Annie Leibowitz mm. and you, you mentioned the sort of rhythm that she had with, with, with her subjects or that she created with her subjects. Was that the, the key thing that you learned from her? And how did you make it your make it your own? Because it's one thing for Annie to create her photography in a particular way, but you really can't emulate her. You can't mimic her. You you can take some elements right. of what you've learned and somehow and somehow make them your own and embrace them in your own particular way. So what did you learn from her with respect to that? And how did you how did you do it to make it your own? Um well first of all Annie was was a big hero when I was in college. I mean, I just thought what she was doing and and putting out there was incredible. And one of the most exciting things is if you get to meet your heroes and certainly to work with them, that they're the real deal, that they really are pushing really hard. They really are inspired. They really are trying to do something that is beyond themselves every day. And that was Annie. She was pushing the time that I was with her, it was the last six months of Rolling Stone, the first six months of Vanity Fair. And when I started, it was about five months after John Lennon had died and she, and, and she had taken those, those mm. pictures. And she was just vibrating with energy. I mean, and creative energy and pushing herself and pushing herself and never satisfied and really so inventive at that time. It was, you know, we did the picture of Steve Martin with the... Uh, Franz Klein paint oh, on yeah. him and John Belushi by the side of the road. And I was on maybe half the pictures in her first book. And it was just really exciting. But I wasn't and have never been that taken by celebrity. I I wasn't that interested in the in the technical part of it. I was just interested in that part of her that was almost like a vibrating tuning fork, you know, that was just giving off this incredible creative energy. And it had a certain commitment. It had a certain, I want to say discipline, but it was really pretty wild. But there was this deep, hard push to do something that was amazing. And it was inside of her. And she was trying to get it out. And she was also, she worked really hard to try and understand who these people were. The ideas didn't come out of thin air. They came out of her collaboration and relationship with the subjects and with herself. And it just had this way of developing that was magical. 
it was magical and it happened every day. And I realized when I was doing that, and especially when I went off on my own, the day that I left her, I realized if I slow down at all, I'm never going to be able to build this energy back up. It was, it was an incredible creative energy, but I also knew that I didn't want to try and be Annie. I mean, of course, that was inside of me and that had informed my first year in New York and, and before that, and it was very powerful, but I wanted to use that to find my, my own pictures. I put together a portfolio, a 16 by 20 portfolio that I would take, it, take around and it was all pictures of Annie working because I felt like that was the most interesting story that I could go out with. And I would go to magazines. And the first magazine I went to was Avenue Magazine. And they looked at this portfolio, this big thing, and they said, wow, these are really beautiful. We'll put you on our try to use list. And I said, don't put me on your try to use list. I'll never hear from you. I'm not leaving this office until you give me an assignment. <laughs> and Michael Schneerson was the editor and he gave me an assignment and it came out great. And I worked for them every month for years. And they had a, it was a black and white magazine, very limited run, but they had great photographers. They had Ralph Gibson and Dwayne Michaels and Ar Arnold Newman. And it, it instantly put me in this, uh, great place. And then I got an assignment. One of the last assignments I did with Annie was, it was a portrait of Henry Aaron for Geo Magazine, which is a big color photojournalism magazine. And I was with a puppet theater from Northern Vermont and they were in an anti-nuke rally and I was going up Fifth Avenue with them. And I saw the picture editor in the audience in the crowd along Fifth Avenue. And it was Elizabeth Biondi who later went to the New Yorker. And I went up there. I said, this puppet theater would make an amazing story for Gio. And she said, come see me next week. So I went to see her and she agreed to give me the assignment. And it was the middle of August. And I started shooting this group in Northern Vermont. I own one camera and one lens. I have never really shot color on my own. And this is one of the premier photo color photojournalism magazines. And I start going up to Vermont and these people were great, but they didn't want to have anything to do with a journalist. So I worked my way in week after week after week. And I'd come down and show Elizabeth the work and she'd say, the story's not there. The story's not there. Finally, it's the beginning of November. It's starting to get freezing in Northern Vermont. The people at Geo told me I had one more try at getting this story or they were going to kill it. Meanwhile, I had, I had processed films film at labs all over New York and had credit at them. And if this story was killed, I wouldn't have been able to pay off my bills. I would have had to leave New York. Oh, wow. So I go up there and it's literally my last day there and the sun is going down. And I take a piece of black fabric and I attach it to the side of the barn and I'm almost in tears. And I finally tell these people, I need you to stand in front of this black fabric before the sun goes down because I don't have a light and I don't have a story yet. I had a lot of great pictures, but I didn't have the openers or certainly a cover. And they agreed to do it finally after three months. And I take these pictures in like 10 minutes and the sun goes down and I go back to New York and I show them and the room breaks out in applause. And I got the cover of Geo and a dozen pages on the inside. And that's how I launched my career. Wow. That is an awesome story. <laughs> that is awesome. And then what I would do is I would, 
you know, take what I had and I'd go to the top of the Condé Nast building and I'd go down the interior steps. You can't do this anymore, but I would do this and I would never get to the lobby without an assignment. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy. I work with a lot of students who are learning photography. They're in college, they're learning it and they're going out to venture into the world of editorial, commercial and advertising photography. And with respect to your early editorial experience, what did you feel you learned from that that you never would have learned in school? Oh, wow. Well, most of my assignments were portrait assignments. Portraits are a collaboration. For a long time, I felt like it was actually, as, as, the, as the kind of photographer that I was, that I was the conduit, that I was the conduit between the subject and the person looking at the magazine or looking at the picture and that I was telling their story, but it wasn't about me. I would do a really good job. I would almost become invisible and it would be about the connection between the subject and the subject's story and the person looking at it. That was something I I really couldn't learn in college, although I had a similar, I, I learned the part about photographing the person, but I didn't learn what happens when it goes out in the real world. And the truth is, when you do magazine photography, for, for instance, you don't have much, of, much interaction with the audience because they're reading it or looking at the magazine away from you. You know, you might have some interaction with the picture editor, the art director, or your friends, or, you know, certainly uh, my parents were very proud of of all the work that got published, but like, that's all the feedback that you get. But there was that other piece of it. You definitely learn about, you know, what that means. There was also a big piece that I learned when I went out in the world, which is the responsibility you have as a photographer. When you're doing someone's portrait, they're letting you into their life. And I've always felt that with that, there's a big responsibility. And it's a bigger responsibility than most of your subjects even appreciate. Most of your subjects don't appreciate how powerful photography is and how powerful a medium it is to manipulate and how easy it is to manipulate. And when you go to photograph someone, you can make fun of them, you can do wonderful things, or you can do horrible things. And well, I understood that concept when I was in school. It was only when I was out in the real world dealing with real people's reputations and real people's careers and real people's uh, celebrities and how they're perceived and how they're put out in the world. What an awesome responsibility you have as a photographer or a journalist or whatever. You know, there are a lot of things that you learn possibly intellectually in school or are talked about, but it's not until you really experience them out in the real world that you appreciate how important that is. Now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsor, Squarespace. You know, when you have a great photograph, I mean, a real exceptional one, you want to play it big. You don't want to relegate it to only a small percentage of the computer screen. You want it to dominate the browser window and to really show it off. Well, with templates like Front Row and Forte, Squarespace allows your images to go full bleed and to make them really shine. And because Squarespace automatically resizes your images for any device, your images are going to look equally as good on a computer screen, a tablet, or a smartphone. Find out for yourself how good you and your images can look by taking advantage of the free trial. 
No credit card is needed. Just upload your images and begin building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME1 and get 10% off and also help to support the show. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. You've said that when you take a portrait of someone, it's not just documenting what they look like. It's it's also about how you feel about that that person, not what you know about that person's sort of history, but what you what you experience of that person in, in the moment. But you've you've also said that uh, there are certain types of people you wouldn't photograph because you feel like you couldn't be honest in with the photographs that you created of those subjects. Um, what's what's that about for you? All the pictures that I take come from using all, all of my senses. I think that a lot of photographers and just a lot of people think that photography is only visual. And I really try to use all of my senses when I'm, when I'm taking a picture. In fact, I sometimes just close my eyes because I want to feel the situation. I, I want to feel the person. I, oftentimes I'll hold their hand when I'm photographing them just for a couple of moments, but I need that connection. My pictures come out of a relationship with the person or the ideas or the moment. It's a relationship with myself and where I'm at. And it's not really, for me at least, a conscious visual exercise. It is, it is an exercise in trying to understand how we all connect and how we all relate to each other. Oftentimes at the beginning of a shooting, I'll especially some of the highest, most high-pressure shootings, I'll take the person's hands, even with the Obamas when I photographed them, and I said, all we're doing is putting love out in the world. That's our job, to put love out in the world. And what I'm meaning when I say that is I don't care about what you look like, your hair and makeup. I know there's been a big fuss over it. I don't care about what we do for a living. I know you're famous. I know you're a movie star or the president or whatever else. I care about who you are as a person. And while those things are reflections of you, deep on the inside, there's a place that we all connect. And I'm really interested in that. And that's, and that's where my work comes from. Is there a situation where you've made the choice not to photograph someone or the rapport or the lack of rapport between you and them made it difficult for you to be able to make the, the kind of images that you wanted? Never the rapport. <laughs> okay. Thank, thank goodness. I, I really get along with uh, everyone. I, I grew up a big liberal in Pittsburgh. And for a while, for a long time, I had this thing where I wouldn't photograph Republicans. Because I felt like my job and what I, what I do for a living is glorifying people and shining a, a light on them. And, and I really don't want to be in a position where I either make fun of someone or I do something that is critical in the type of portraits that I do. I understand people that do that. I understand what journalists do, certainly at war or in lots of situations that are, that are difficult. And I really appreciate the people that do that. But my type of photography involves an agreement that is an agreement with my subject that I, that I respect you, that I respect you, and I'm, and I'm going to use the tools – that I have in a way that, um, that doesn't humiliate you and, and, in fact, shows the world how special you are. 
Well, that's a that's a perfect segue for your your friendship with Glenn Beck. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the most unlikely thing I could ever have imagined. Because when I met Glenn Beck, I was still in that place where I was not photographing Republicans. And I would go to the White House when there were the Clintons or certainly the Obamas, but I would never go there when I was invited to shoot the Bushes. And it's, it's a little bit crazy now, but I just felt, when I look back, but I just felt, you know what, I sleep really well at night if I have some parameters on this. So, so that's how I led my career. So I get this assignment from my good friend, Barbara Griffin, who was running the photo department and really built the photo department at Turner. And there's this guy on headline news named Glenn Beck. And I knew nothing about him. And Barbara put together this shooting and hired me in New York to photograph this guy, Glenn Beck. And we had about 10 or 12 ideas. And every idea that we put him in, he was just a riot. He would just take every idea and push it and push it and push it. One of, one of the ideas we had was he was on a diet. So we put one of those collars that you put around dogs' heads so they won't scratch themselves. And I gave him a piece of cake. And he's holding the piece of cake outside of the dog collar. And he's looking at it and moving around and looking at it. And finally, he just takes a big bite and sits it down right inside the collar and stares at the camera. But everything that we did with him that day was really fun. And he really pushed it. And there was something going on. And then they called me to do his first book cover. It was called, I think, An Inconvenient Book. I hope that's the title. And I rented Avedon's old studio. Avedon had passed away and you could rent it. And for me, that is, there's no holier, holier photographic ground than that little room on the Upper East Side. And you walk in there and you just feel all the ghosts floating around. There's Marilyn and there's the Beatles and there's, you know, every amazing picture that was taken in that room. And I'm there with Glenn Beck. And we worked through all these ideas that the publishers had had, and I, I did my best, but they were really pretty mediocre ideas. And I look at him at the end and he says, you know, I really hate California. I said, what do you mean you hate California? How can you hate California? That doesn't even make sense. He says, don't even get me started. So I look around the room and there's a map hanging on the, on the wall of California. And I get an X-Acto blade and I cut it out very carefully and I hand it to him and I said, put this in your mouth. And I take this picture and I said, now eat California. And he starts eating this and it's California shaped like kind of a jagged tongue. And he starts eating it and he just acts like he has indigestion and he just takes it the whole way. And the last picture of that shooting, California is a wad in his mouth. And I say, spit it at me. And he just spits it at the camera and there's this wad just flying to the camera. And that was it. <laughs> and the cover of the book becomes that first picture I took of California coming out of his mouth. And then they called me a couple months later to do the second, to do another book. And I said, I don't think I can do this anymore. He's, you know, that was really interesting and that was great, but I do know his politics now and I just don't think I want to pursue this relationship. And one of the top editors at his publisher calls me and he said, I know you're having a hard time with this, but you have to understand that Glenn rags on Republicans as much as Democrats and put the politics aside either way. You guys have some really crazy creative energy going and you should pursue this. 
and he doubled my fee. <laughs> <laughs> Which is always nice. Which is always nice. And I did this second shooting with him and he took it so far, so far beyond where I would ever even suggest it go. And after that, I realized, okay, I'm on this, I'm on this journey with this guy who I would never normally talk to, let, let alone want to be friends with. And Glenn just completely embraced me. And I said, listen, we cannot take pictures unless I know that you trust me completely. It's not going to work. If you think that I'm going to use these pictures for something or do something with them that's disrespectful or manipulative, I'm going to prove to you that you can trust me. And then we can let this unfold. So I started taking the craziest pictures of him and not releasing them. I would just put them away and put them away. One of them was, there was one day that he called um, Obama a racist. And I called him up. I said, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You just shot yourself on the foot. And then I took him out in the desert in Arizona and I gave him a gun and I drilled a hole in his shoe and I had blood coming out. And he just, you know, does his thing. And he acted like he was in great agony shooting himself in the foot. And after six months, Glenn said to me, why aren't you releasing these pictures? And I said, do you trust me? <laughs> and, and he said, I trust you completely. I said, okay. And, that, and, and, and it just went from there. He's been, I mean, it's crazy to say because I know what everyone's, what a lot of people, certainly my friend's opinion of him is. And I know, you know, how he goes out in the media, but he has been one of the most supportive, creative people in my career, generous, and oddly enough, just a great friend. We talk a lot about non-political things. We talk about politics too, but we, we mostly talk about raising our kids or putting love out in the world. There's this crazy story. He was, he was doing this big, big rally in Washington on 828, I think four or five years ago. And he had spent the summer writing this speech and it was at the height of his popularity and when he was big at Fox and everything. And there was going to be a big turnout for this thing. And he reads me the speech that he's working on. He's really proud of it. This is the day before. And he says, what do you think? And I said, I don't think it's very good. I said, you're totally missing the point. The point is all the people coming to this have one-on-one -on -one relationships with you. They're in kitchens washing dishes, listening to you on their headset. They are driving home. They are making dinner for their families, but they're all having these one-on-one -on -one relationships with you all over the country, in their houses, where they work, in their cars. And they're all coming together to have a group experience. I said, they're already on board with all the politics and, and all the rest, but they're having a group experience with you. And how can you have this such a close relationship with your audience and not acknowledge that and not acknowledge the, the love that happens when this many people get together. And then that's another one of those like seminal moments in our relationship where, you know, these shared values that we had became very clear mm. and they weren't shared politics. They were shared humanity. I just feel that if the world and not that I don't disagree with Glenn on every single issue, but I just feel like a, a lot of us disagree on a lot of things. And if we could find that place that we're all connected and we all get along, 
the world would be a much better place. Yeah. Well, you use the word trust in your, your collaboration with him and that, how that allowed you to do some really cool things creatively. And I think that trust is really essential for any form of portraiture. And it's interesting because you go from photographing the Obamas to photographing Honey Boo Boo. Um, <laughs> that's about as wide of an extreme as <laughs> yeah. sometimes one day after the other. <laughs> but that that's the essence of of I think good portraiture, at least for for me when I take a look at at, at photographs, particularly of people who are photographed frequently, like celebrities or politicians or or sports figures. They have reasons to be guarded and to be very protective of how they're portrayed in in in, in a photograph. But it seems like you don't discriminate in terms of, you know, your interaction with them. But you, you sometimes you don't have the duration of a, of a friendship that you have like with Glenn now. But you may only have a very short period of time in order to be able to convince someone to trust you to be able to make the photograph. So what is what, what kind of mojo are you working that allows you to be able to do that? First of all, that's my gift. I mean, if you would say like, what's, what's your real gift? That's, that's my gift is I am, I am able to go into a situation with a stranger and gain their trust really quickly. I mean, that's, that's, that's what I do. And that's what I love doing. You know, I'm sure that lots of people can do it in different ways, but that's a huge part of what I do. And it's a huge part of my, you know, success such as it is. But when you said that trust, seems to be the essence. I think that's the essence of our life. I mean, first of all, you have to understand that if you want someone to trust you, you have to be trustworthy. And that's an important piece of the uh, equation that you just can't have someone trust you and not be trustworthy. That kind of doesn't work out. If you get, you know, if you're married and you want your spouse to trust you and you're running around, you know, you aren't going to have a great, a great marriage. But I feel like, you know, almost all the lessons that make you a great photographer also make you a great person. You know, you aren't asking someone because you pick up a camera, you should be trustworthy. You should be trustworthy in every relationship that you're in. You know, that's what makes a great friendship. That's what makes a great marriage. That's what makes you a great father or a great, you know, woman, a great wife and or mother. You know, that's the, that's essential. That's the most important thing. Mm. And I just feel like when you get to those, those kinds of issues, but especially trust, if you're wanting to know what makes a great photographer, it is being a really good person yeah, and being a really uh, appreciative person and a curious person and, and a generous person. And those, those are the qualities that make a good photographer. It's not that you compose something really well. It's, it's not that, you know, that's a piece of it. It's not that you're great at lighting. It's not that you have the best camera. It's that you're a great human being. Being a photographer and one of the great gifts of photography is it gives you an incredible tool for navigating the world in a way that allows you to appreciate how special not only you are, but other people are. Well, I, I love your book, the, uh, the Unforgettable Photograph. I think it's one of the best books on photography I've seen in a, in a long time. Despite the fact that you have built a career on, you know, photographing celebrities and, and the like, 
the images that make up this book are are very like personal. I feel like very personal photographs. You know, a family and 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 just friends or just travel and things like that. And it's one of the reasons I really like the the book, especially coming from someone who has like a pedigree such as you. But I'm I'm wondering how recent fatherhood has influenced you or changed you as 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 a photographer because i know being a dad is is a big change but how has it shaped or influenced what you do with the camera being a father is so far beyond my wildest dream that i didn't even i couldn't even imagine what what this would be like before i was a dad and then you be you know you become a dad and i remember that first time that we walked my my oldest son Jackson down the uh, driveway and we get to the end of the driveway and we look at each other and we said, Steffi and I, and we said, now we're one of them. And it's so funny. It's a completely different way of being on almost every, every level. It's the amount of love that you experience being a father, at least my experience is, is just, it's like a different language it's like a, it's a completely different way of way of being and no matter what's going on in your life you get to that door at night and you just turn the knob and you go in and there's just infinite pleasure and joy running up to you calling you this name daddy daddy that only in my case two people in the world will ever call me and it's just something else. It's something else. And it's such a huge part of my life that almost everything now gets filtered through, through that experience. I photograph my children every day. So they could go and say, uh, what did I look like on January 15th every year that I've been alive? And, 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 they, could, and they could see that. But sometimes I photograph for 10 seconds and sometimes five minutes, never more than 10 or 15 minutes. But it's just a daily part of our lives. And when you're photographing the same subject every day in that way, interesting things happen. And you, you try things that you normally wouldn't try. You don't take the pictures oftentimes that seriously. Oftentimes, it's, you don't even think about them at all. In fact, I'd say most of the times I don't think about them at all. And the thing that's amazing is every time I take pictures, they're really interesting. And I don't know what's going on at this stage of my career, but it's like when I pick up the camera, I feel like a magician holding a hat and I'm just pulling rabbits out. It feels very, very powerful, very powerful. The kids have allowed me to... I feel like they've allowed me to be myself more than almost anything else because they demand that. They demand that I'm myself. And they demand that I'm the purest version of myself and the strongest version of myself and the most vulnerable version of myself. And I'd almost say in some ways the weakest version of myself because I realize so clearly my limitations so often. Wow, it's astonishing. It's astonishing to me. Yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? <laughs> I've been making lists lately of uh, music that I really like. And I decided that, which I won't do here, but I've decided that it's okay 
to include people who are no longer with us in these kind of lists. Dwayne Michaels for me is he's he's been a, a gigantic inspiration. I think that he in some ways defined photography for me in his photograph that's titled this photograph is my proof. It's a couple sitting on a bed and it's this photograph is my proof. We were there, we were together, we were in love, look, see for yourself. And he's really saying there is this special moment and I did capture it with a photograph and it'll exist forever. I think that's really, really powerful. And Dwayne's done something that's also interesting with his career. He just keeps evolving and evolving and changing. He's now in his mid to late 70s and his gallery dropped him in New York and a a gallery in Chelsea picked him up. He was on 57th Street and they had a huge gallery. And last spring, he filled that gallery with new work and it was completely brilliant. And I think Dwayne's a a rich, rich well of uh, inspiration. Oh, great. That's a great recommendation. But uh, where where can people go to find out more about you and uh, your work and everything that you do? I have a website, Lang Studio, L-A-N-G-E-S-T-U-D-I-O.com. And on there, there's actually, if you go to the book section, there's a fun video about the book that I did that I'm pretty proud of. And in the video section, there are two videos that are birth announcements. One's called Welcome and one's called Inside. And I feel they especially get to the heart of, of what I do. Well, thank you so much. You, you certainly did dis- disappoint me. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of fun talking to you. Thank you so much for including me. This is an amazing series that, that you do. I find it really inspiring and really unique and a great service, not only to photographers, but to creatives. It's great. Thank you for joining us. You can show your continued support for the work we do here at TCF by making donations of any amount using PayPal. By clicking on the links in the show notes or on the website, your contributions help us to improve the show. Each episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you with the contributions of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music is available via incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.